Sit down if you want to. Right in the middle of what's going on. I'm in the middle of an interrogation. Take a seat, young Skywalker. The middle children of history, man. Middle of the day, Alfred? Please, take a seat there. Right now, I'm in the middle of nowhere. Stop the middle, it's a base hit! Meeting in the middle. Fight, fight. They fought for the freedom of middle. 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 The middle of the middle of the middle. The middle of a war! Friggin' ridiculous! Why don't we have a seat to talk about? No! Not the middle seat! Oh, hi, everyone. Welcome to Big Hollywood Movie Podcast, The Middle Seats. It's best seat in the house for all things movies and entertainment. My name is Andrew Oje. I, Big Hollywood host. Now let's meet my friends. He, my best friend, and would never betray me. Say hi to Nate Lungarini. <laughs> Please tell me you can do the whole review like this, Drew. <laughs> what are you talking about? I have no accent. I have no idea what you're talking about. Anyway, moving on from Nate. Two's a party, but three's a crowd. Mr. Jake Hensler. I'm, I'm, that, this is fine. I'm digging this so far. I'm really, <laughs> yeah, I'm, too, I'm really okay with it. It's too bad. It's over. <laughs> it's over because I was slipping it. I was, I was slipping into Brooklyn. What a story. What a story. <laughs> what a story, Andrew. Well, yeah, it's an art form. It is an art form. And we'll get more into that later in the show. But if you're just joining us for the first time, my name is Andrew Oje. I do not usually talk like that. But this is the Middle Seats Podcast, the best seat in the house for all things movies and entertainment. Our show is divided into three segments. We open the show with Lobby Talk, where one member of the crew, either Jake, Nate, or I, propose a talk, pick, and we just kind of go back and forth on it about different things in the world of movies, just like you would in the lobby of your local movie theater. Then we move into our news segment where we talk about the biggest news of the week. There's some big things that we have to cover this week that happened in movies that we will get to eventually. And then we move into our feature review. Uh, I wasn't having a stroke there. I was impersonating Tommy Wiseau of The Disaster Artist, the new film by James Franco. But first, before we even get into that, gentlemen, how are we doing? Do we have do we appropriately have Star Wars mania yet? <laughs> the hype ship has taken off. And I am ready to jump to light speed. I just I just rewatched Force Awakens uh, Saturday night, and uh, it was the first time watching it since like Christmas Eve, I think. So I'm I'm pretty pumped. I'm pretty excited. As of this recording, we are about three or four days away from the release of Star Wars: The Last Jedi, and early reactions from the premieres are mind blowing from what I'm hearing. Um, so it's it's just hard not to get excited. But first, we've got a big other week. To cover here before we even get into Star Wars The Last Jedi next week, let's talk about this week and let's move into lobby talk. Let's all go to the lobby. You're in the lobby? What do you look like? I will blow up the block before you can make the lobby. So guys, talking about Star Wars Mania, um, I've been watching the original trilogy and The Force Awakens in preparation for The Last Jedi, which opens in theaters and is about to break the box office this Friday. Um, and I was re-watching Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi. Um, I didn't get to A New Hope because I feel like it doesn't have a lot of relevance to The Last Jedi, and I've seen A New Hope probably six or seven times on its own, so I don't need to rewatch it. But anyway, mm-hmm. I digress. I was watching Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, and one of the big things that people remember about that movie is the character of Boba Fett. And I'm watching this movie, and I'm going through it, and this is not, this is not a revelation that I just made today. This is something I made a long time ago. Um, and this, this character, he, he does nothing. He, he does very little. He plays very little part in the plot. He maybe is like one piece of the puzzle to move Empire forward so we can get to that big carbonite scene in the third act. 
Um, and then Return of the Jedi, he just goes out like a bitch. So, but he's got this huge cult following with Star Wars fans and movie fans in general. And I honestly just don't get it. I mean, his costume's good, but like, there's nothing much else to him. So that got me thinking, what is the most overrated movie character of all time? So obviously my choice is Boba Fett, um, because that's a pretty cliched answer. Um, and I know these guys probably feel the same way about Boba Fett, but this is my question. So I get to pick it and claim it. So, Nate Lungarini, you have the floor. What is the most overrated movie character of all time? <laughs> well, just to tag along with Boba Fett here, if you didn't pick him, I absolutely would have. This is a character that has six lines in the original trilogy, and one of them is, Ah! <laughs> <laughs> like, he, he does not do much. He looks darn cool, but he does not do anything at all. So I wholeheartedly agree with that answer. He goes down with a girly scream, too. Uh, my pick, though, is com- kind of a complete U-turn from a dreaded intergalactic bounty hunter. I'm going to go with Snow White. Snow White is the classic Disney princess. And even decades later, we still have little girls running around in Snow White costumes for Halloween, going in Snow White get-ups at Disney World. She is still incredibly popular. But out of all the Disney princesses, she does the least. (laughs) In her movie, all she does is sing, clean, and cook. Her biggest character arc is telling all the dwarves to wash up before supper. Holy sexist. It's 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 really pathetic. Oh, it's bad. Sexist yeah. one. <laughs> Completely outdated. <laughs> um, but just the fact that she's still so relevant to little girls and childhoods today is kind of saddening for me. Um, she's really overrated, um, but I'm happy to see that she's kind of on her way out with all these new princesses that are popping up the scene with Frozen, Moana, and whatnot. Oh, yeah. Um, We were talking about Disney representation a couple weeks ago, and she is Disney sexism, 1930s sexism in general. I wouldn't just say put it it right on Disney, but 1930s sexism at its finest. Um, You want to talk about lack of lines? She's the titular character, and I'm pretty sure that the majority of the characters in the film say more lines than her. I wouldn't be surprised. She does pretty much nothing, and and the facial expressions they animate on her are just like they're they're mind-blowingly stoic you know what i mean it's it's not yeah. it's she's not an interesting character i agree jake what's your choice um i think you you both have good choices um i was definitely thinking boba fett once you said overrated characters uh nate fascinating i never would have thought of that in a million years um but i don't disagree it's interesting i'm mine's not i'm gonna cheat a little mine's not quite movie character it's a little bit more He's been in movies. He's more TV, I guess. But it's it's Ash Ketchum. There's like 55 Pokemon. There? <laughs> but he's more known for, for the, the TV series. Um, I love... I Nate and I both. But I loved... I adored Pokemon as a kid. I knew... I could tell you all the 151, what they did, who they evolved into, where they came from, like everything. Who their gym was, like everything. Um, and I thought Ash Ketchum was cool because he's a center character out catching all these Pokemon, and he's 10, and I'm like, I'm 10, I want to catch Pokemon, so I thought he was cool. I rewatched the like the original, original Pokemon show not that long ago, and I was like, he doesn't, he doesn't do anything. He's really not that cool. He doesn't win fair. He doesn't even have the best Pokemon. Like, what does he do that is so exciting? He's an ASPCA <laughs> walking nightmare, is what he is. 
<laughs> he just, he, like, and I know Nate has thoughts on this, but I was like, he doesn't. Oh, he yeah. has never won. I did not see him win a battle in a fair way at all, which was shocking. In a but, fair way, what the heck are you talking about? The sprinklers he uses type advantages to win. Yeah, with the sprinklers. Okay, if you're gonna if you're gonna talk about one gym battle from the TV series with Brock there. Sure, I'm sure you can find lo- loads of ways where he wins in unconventional means. Whatever. But from from a whole, Ash is a decent battler. Um, I'm totally going to count Ash as a movie character here. There have been 21 different movies uh, in the Pokemon franchise, and he obviously is a central oh, character. I said, I said 55, and I wasn't that far off. Yeah. Um, but... Let's just say, for for argument's sake, that we'll focus on the first three movies. Because those are the ones that most people in our generation have seen. Uh, Ash, I think, isn't really an overrated character because he's pretty integral to the plot of the movies that he's in. He is quite literally the chosen one in Pokemon 2000. And you could argue that that's a pretty weak plot line, and I wouldn't really fight you too hard on it. But... He still accomplishes a lot. He has to journey between three islands, get three magical MacGuffins, and rescue Lugia to save the world. It's it's not a do-nothing movie. Uh, what did I just get myself into? <laughs> <laughs> I just entered a world I did not mean to enter. You just brought a Caterpie to a Charizard battle. That's what you did. <laughs> oh my god. How is this too geeky for me? I don't know what to do. <laughs> um, I guess I was focusing more on on the sh- the show then, because from what I from what I've seen of late, because because you're right, I because I loved Ash as a whole in everything, movies and TV, uh, and I remember the the Lugia and the Mewtwo um, movies. I don't know if I watched much after that, but I do remember those a little bit. Like as far as the the show goes, from what I watched lately, I was like, he just. Oh, he's, it was just disappointing, and there was there was more than just the the yeah. Brock one. There was there were other gym battles where like something happens or like something steps in or they have to unite, and he doesn't really win the battle, but they unite, so he gets the badge anyway. I'm like, that is the cheesiest way to call yourself like a gym <laughs> a gym master or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I obviously I'm not as a big a fan of Pokemon as the two of you. I was more of a Yu Gi Oh guy growing up. I like Yu Gi Oh too. Um, Screw you. Yeah. That is a whole separate yeah. discussion. I'm going to ask you to table that right now. Um, but I'm going to look at Ash in a different way than the two of you were looking at because I think you guys are talking about plot plot structure and his relevance and importance to the plot. The reason I can see where Jake's argument is coming from is what makes Ash Ketchum an interesting character? Like what about him makes him a unique and special character that he is the one that we are following in this story? And I think that's what it comes down to here is why – I think the big wrap-up of all of this, of why these characters are overrated but they've struck a chord with popular culture, is they have some kind of tangible popularity with the masses for various reasons. Boba Fett, I'm 100% convinced it's his costume. It is a badassly designed costume. It's show-don't-tell, I think, for Boba Fett. You, You get the cool costume, but you don't get his backstory. But the fact that he, like, stands up to Vader in one of the three lines of dialogue he has in the movie, he's like, whoa, that's cool. That's true. And people only have those nice positive memories to go along with Boba Fett. There isn't enough material for him to get a negative I, I feel sense. like he needs a spinoff to, to get all the justice that he gets from fans. Because I'm with Andrew. I don't... Mm-hmm. I When I rewatch them, I'm like, why is he so huge? He's, he's not even in it that much. Um, 
But if he gets no. a spinoff, they could definitely do him justice. So I think in two, there are two separate camps in my head that I'm thinking of, of what makes an overrated character hit those popular culture marks. One is be, is that they look cool. Um, I'm going to throw a controversial one out here that I just thought of in my head. Um, but the Neo from The Matrix is a really cool looking character, but he, I don't think he's that interesting. He's more interesting as the number two category, which is overrated characters in cinema that strike a chord because they are ciphers for the audience. Every little girl wants to be Snow White because they get the prince and they go on adventures and they live happily ever after. That's why Snow White is so popular. Every little boy wanted to be Ash Ketchum, going around the world collecting Pokemon, battling Pokemon. That's why Ash Ketchum is so popular. And the, the big hat, so, hat turn when he goes into battle. That, that was pretty great. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> I, 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 know you I was were. rolling here. Um, it, are there any other categories that you two can think of of why an overrated character takes off? Because in my mind, those are the two things that make them interesting to other people. So yeah, so either they they look cool enough to stand up on their own, or they're plastic enough that anybody can fit their worldview by looking as them as a lens for themselves. Essentially, that's where we're going with here. That's what I'm saying. Right, yeah. like maybe they don't have a lot of depth, but what they what they do within their story is pretty cool. Kind of like the Ash Ketchum thing. Yeah. yeah, it's the equivalent of like the silent protagonist in a video game. Everyone just kind of puts their own identity on the character and that's how they become a cultural icon. And yeah, I think I think all of our characters fit into that in one way or another. Yeah. And as a totally separate topic, why do you think most video game movies don't work? <laughs> so anyway, I think we agree. There are, these are some of the most overrated movie characters of all time and this is why they're so overrated. Speaking of movies with unique characters in it, let's transition into our new segment. And this just in, a Newsbreak special report. I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. So speaking of movies with unique characters, the nominations for the 75th annual Golden Globes were announced this morning, this morning being Monday morning at the time of our recording. Um, we talked about kind of the politics of the Golden Globes a couple weeks ago, why they're a little bit iffy on certain things, and we'll get into some of the snubs in a second. But first, up front... The, we're going to only specifically focus on the nominations in movies here. Um, we could do a whole other segment on the nominations in TV. I know Nate, Jake, and I's patterns in TV sometimes don't intersect, so that would be kind of pointless. Um, leading the nominations with seven of them is Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water. It earned seven nominations, like I said. It's a movie that none of us have been able to see yet because it hasn't reached um, wide release yet. It won't until Christmas time. Six nominations apiece for Steven Spielberg's The Post, starring Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep. Again, does not go wide until January 12th, so none of us are going to be able to see it for a couple of weeks, most likely. And the three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri also received six nominations. At least Jake and I have seen that. Nate, have you seen that one? Not yet. It's on my to-watch list, though. It, and we're gonna, we'll hold off on our thoughts here on that one specifically, just in case we review it in the future. Anyway, the nominations for Best Picture Drama went to Call Me By Your Name, Dunkirk, the Post, The Shape of Water, and Three Billboards. And Best Picture Comedy. Here's where we get a little bit of dicey here, folks. We've got The Disaster Artist, which we're reviewing later in the show. We'll tell you if we agree then. Um, get Out was the one of the big topics that we talked about a couple weeks ago. It's classified as a comedy, and it's in here as a comedy. We've got The Greatest Showman. I should say it was a comedy and musical category. So The Greatest Showman, which is an upcoming musical starring Hugh Jackman. I, Tanya, the biopic starring Margot Robbie. 
as one of the most infamous figure skaters of all time, and Lady Bird, starring Saoirse Ronan, directed by Greta Gerwig, which has famously is about... Jake, what is it at now? 185 for 185 on Rotten Tomatoes? Yeah, I know it hit the 180 mark at least a couple weeks ago. Um, yeah, 100 for 100 um, out of like 180-something critics now, which is like it's most of all time. Yeah. It's unprecedented um, rave reviews that that one is getting. So it's there, obviously, in the Best Picture Comedy category, but that also takes me to the biggest snubs that stuck out to me specifically. First of all, no Greta Gerwig for director, who directed Lady Bird. Um, No Jordan Peele for director or screenplay. That's a little, forget out, that's a little bit more, I don't know about excusable, but that movie got like a 99% Rotten Tomatoes and was beloved and has been on a lot of top 10 lists at the end of the year. Uh, No Luca Gudagino. I think that's how you say his name, Gudagino or something like that, (laughs) for Call Me By Your Name, um, which is supposed to be another one of the best picture frontrunners. In fact, all five directors that were nominated for best director, guys, you want to take a guess at what their characteristics are? White. There you go. There's one. Male. There you go, Jake. You win the lottery, (laughs) the sad lottery. All five directors are white males, including Ridley Scott for All the Money in the World, a movie that as of probably this recording, he is still manipulating. In my mind, I believe that. This movie got three nominations, including Christopher Plummer for Best Supporting Actor, having rolled out of bed three weeks ago, replaced Kevin Spacey on set for like three scenes, and somehow gets that nomination. I'm I'm really glad you brought this up because we were we we briefly talked about this earlier. Has anybody seen it? Anybody at it's, all? I've I don't know if it's done or not. I would not put it past like the Golden is, Globes. Was it have, eligible for nominations? I don't know if anybody saw it. I would not put it past the Golden Globes to have not seen this movie and still I, nominated. It's just so backwards. I'm really curious. I don't I really don't think anybody's seen it yet. I haven't seen any reviews <laughs> so or anything what, like that. What's going on? So but yeah, I got nominations for Ridley <laughs> Scott, uh Christopher Plummer and Michelle Williams, who is in the best lead actress drama category. Um, in the best comedy category, thanks to Get Out taking its spot, I would say, or maybe Greatest Showman's not good, maybe Ayatanya's not good, but there's no big sick in the best category, uh, best comedy category. Oh, I, I forgot that about that one. Yeah, that was been... another really good Rotten Tomatoes uh, winner there. Yeah, um, I, I personally think it's just a good, not great comedy. I'm not necessarily devastated, but it was just surprising for it to not be there. And then finally, like, a couple minor superhero movies that I'm a little surprised didn't get any kind of love. Logan or Wonder Woman wasn't anywhere. Um, Logan, I'm less surprised about. I'm not surprised by that. Well, Wonder Woman was is the movie of the year. So. I thought Wonder Woman yeah. might. Because they, they gave Deadpool a bunch of stuff, and Wonder Woman is, you know, arguably just as big, depending on the demographic. Right. exactly. So those are all the big snubs that stuck out to me. Um, Jake... If you're looking at the list right now, are there anything else that you want to bring up? Anything that you're outraged at about specifically? Um, well, I know, I think they kind of shoot themselves in the in the foot a little bit because they do two different best picture categories, but then they have to funnel them all into best director. So I feel like they, you know, they obviously miss like Greta Gerwig and you know Jordan Peele, um, but Florida Project was not named, and I know you, I know, I think I'm the only one who's seen it. Oh, but... I com- completely did not notice that. Good call. Yeah, Florida Project was an absolute great movie, and I'm surprised it didn't get. Uh, Willem Dafoe got nominated for supporting, which he absolutely deserves. He was fantastic, but no, no director or um, or writing or best picture at all for Florida Project is a little surprising to me as well. That's a um, that's a good one. I completely did not even think about that. That is probably in the top upper, upper echelon for best picture contention. Not even nominated here. Yeah, as far as contention goes. 
That um, is for sure. Really surprising. Anything... How often does that happen in Golden Globes where the Oscars and the Golden Globes are on completely different pages? Uh, I don't. It's it's it happens hard, now and then. It it's hard to gauge. There, if you want to look yeah. for what's going to be the front runner for the Oscars, usually I would say the PGA is the big one to look at. Um, the Producers Guild of America. Um, one thing that's been really interesting about this season so far is that I believe out of the five or six major awards, we've had like four or five different winners. So it's pretty much anybody's game at this point. Yeah, we don't know any. I feel like whenever the PGA like gives their awards out, that'll be a pretty good, um, you know, fact or deciding factor. But until then, yeah, nobody really knows yet. I think we. I think it's a race between. I think either Lady Bird, Call Me by Your Name, Dunkirk, Shape of Water. And the post are the ones that are really, really in it. But then there are a lot of outsiders that are close too. Um, anyway, Nate, anything that stands out to you? I I think um, Jordan Peele not getting nominated for Get Out as Best Director is the only one that makes me a little upset. Just because the movie did so much better than anybody could have anticipated. And it was critically acclaimed to boot. Like, uh, you could put Wonder Woman in the same boat. Um, the director there obviously did great things for the superhero franchise. Um, but I'd be a little bit harsher to Wonder Woman just because I thought that as a movie, Wonder Woman was a little bit more average. Get Out was freshly original in almost every single way. Um, so to not get that best director thing and see mm -hmm. names that we've already seen before... Um, like, does Spielberg really need this again? We haven't seen the post yet. We don't know. Yeah. Um, um two, two things I want to bring up. One, Andrew, I'm surprised you didn't make a fit that Lego Batman missed out on animated feature. Oh, Boss Baby is there instead. <laughs> don't even, I'm not even bothering. Because I knew it would just get me too mad. Ferdinand is there as well, if we're going to get technical. I'm not trying to be mean to Ferdinand. I haven't seen it yet, but. Right, we haven't seen that yet. I, I, yeah. Okay. Uh, Nate, as far as peel goes i understand it's a very crowded director category and personally i think what i would have done is i would have, obviously i haven't seen really scott's movie so i can't really comment on it but i would have removed him put greta gerwig in director and put peel mm. in writing because the the globes don't always pick who deserves they kind of just pick who they want to come hang out yeah so if you want the most people there <laughs> yeah that writing category is pretty pretty jam-packed though so that'd be kind of hard to do i don't know yeah, he needed to get in, in there, there somehow i think it's really anybody's game in a lot of the acting categories jake I've, again i haven't seen the movie but i think the only slam dunk acting wise we would say for this year is willem dafoe i think is on track to win best supporting actor at this yeah point. it's it he's not i wouldn't say he's as good as jk simmons in whiplash but it's a similar thing like he's he's pretty much the clear front runner out of anybody i've seen so far um, yeah sam rockwell is very good <laughs> In three of billboards, but it sounds like it's Willem Dafoe's year. Mini confession to make. Nate, what, what's going on over there? I I didn't see what he was nominated for, and the only thing I remember him being supporting actor in was Death Note. And I was completely bewildered yeah, as you guys dude, were talking. As, as the <laughs> demon Caillou. But, but um, <laughs> as Florida Project, which I haven't seen, admittedly, um, that makes a lot more sense. <laughs> yeah, he's he's great in that. The fact that you considered that it possibly could have been Death Note is how much of a piece of shit the Golden Globes are. <laughs> um, but anyway, we've we've done enough with I, this. The Golden I Globes love Andrew's air disdain for the Golden Globes. The Golden Globes <laughs> air at the beginning of January. They're hosted by Seth Meyers. They're usually more fun to watch than the Oscars because all of the celebrities get fucking loaded on alcohol. So I'll be watching, but I'll be hate watching specifically. 
Anyway, moving on to movies that are coming out in 2018. We got two big trailers this week. The first for the sequel to Jurassic World, Jurassic World The Fallen Kingdom. Do these animals deserve the same protections given to other species? These creatures were here before us. And if we're not careful, they're going to be here after. That was a snippet of the trailer of Jurassic World The Fallen Kingdom. It is directed by J.A. Bayona, who takes over for The Book of Henry's Colin Trevorrow. That's what he's going to be known as forever for me. Oh, dick move. Um, I'm sorry, he earned it. It, yeah. it's, it follows you anywhere you go. It's like a tattoo that you regret. Um, but anyway, J.A. Bayona, he's done a lot of mid-budget horror movies slash dramas. Um, he's responsible for The Orphanage, which is a really good Mexican horror movie. Um, the Impossible, which is the disaster movie about the tsunami in 2004. And then last year's A Monster Call, which is kind of this um, fantasy drama, per se. It's oh, I kind forgot of you did that. I really like that. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty decent movie. Um, the Impossible's pretty good, too. But anyway, he's on a big franchise now. He takes over for Jurassic World The Fallen Kingdom. It returns to the cast. Chris Pratt, Bryce Dallas Howard, and B.D. Wong adds a few cast members, including Justice Smith from The Get Down, James Cromwell, and Toby Jones. And it is the return of Jeff Goldblum as Dr. Ian Malcolm for the first time since Jurassic Park The Lost World. It is due out in theaters on June 22nd. So, Nate Lungarini, let's start with you. What did you think of this first initial trailer for Jurassic World The Fallen Kingdom? Well, um, <laughs> I, I was I was all right for the first half of this, this trailer, um, but the second half of the trailer is essentially just a scene from the movie. And we see this, um, we see him running from dinosaurs and a big dinosaur comes out and then the t-rex eats that dinosaur and then they all run into the into the into the water there and i'm just seeing cliche after cliche like a you're spoiling for us um the dinosaur eating the other dinosaur in the trailer so there's no tensions for us watching that scene now in the actual movie and to top it all off the scene basically ends with the now cliche a uh, hero running into dust <laughs> shot that we've seen in Batman vs Superman. We've seen in the Mummy, um, Mission Impossible, Mission Impossible. Like so, two, so Tom Cruise movies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, here we are. Uh, Jurassic World was this mega hit for what's still kind of an average movie, and this one just looks like either more of the same if you're happy about it, or just kind of blech if you're not. Harsh words from Nate Lungarini. Jake Hensler, do you echo those sentiments? I, I have a feeling I'm, again, oddly enough, going to be defending it a little bit. And not in the sense that I think it looked great, because I don't. Um, but I agree with the the second half of the trailer part that Nate was saying. It is... I, I noticed that... I, I think I've watched it twice now. But the, the second half of the trailer is just the volcano erupting scene and then run, running away from it. And I'm like, that's not a trailer. That's half a trailer and half a scene. What What... Just really weird choice. But... My only, and I'm not saying it's going to happen. I obviously don't know. I didn't direct it. I'm not on the set. But the vibe that the trailer gives is that it's like, it's more of a intense thriller kind of movie. You know, like they go into this now uninhabited island except for dinosaurs. And these dinosaurs are like hunting them. Almost like a, like a predator movie, except with Jurassic World. And if they go in that direction, 
I, I think that could be cool. I think that's a, that would be a new, fresh version of this. But I, I, I want to make it clear I'm not hopeful. Wait, wait, wait. A new, fresh version? What was the original Jurassic Park then? They were literally running was, away that, from that was dinosaurs. More about the, well, that was more about the... That's true. But that was more about the like amusement park shutting down. This is like rescuing them and going into uncharted territory. So you know what they're getting into, I guess. So it's so it's two and three <laughs> is what it is. <laughs> I guess. But the feel of the trailer looks better than two and three, obviously. Um, maybe not obviously, but it looks better than two and three. Um, so if they go into, you know, like like the movie Predator and, and Alien or whatever else, if they do that, but for Jurassic World, it could go okay, I think. Okay. I, I mean, I see what you're saying. Because I, I know you're going to um, come in and rip it to shreds. This, this guys, this movie looks awful. Yeah, I, I see. I disagree with that, but I'm not hopeful. This movie looks really bad from the onset. The first moment in the trailer already tells me that we are in for another two hours of Bryce Dallas Howard and Chris Pratt bickering mm. and just going back and forth at each other because they're they're not a couple anymore, clearly. So this is all this movie. They're just gonna go back and forth at each other. It's gonna be banter, banter, banter. It's gonna be Chris Pratt's if character. If they being... get back together at the end of the movie, I'm walking out of the theater. I'm not gonna see credits. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. Just going to be rinse, wash, repeat from Jurassic World. So at that point, I'm already annoyed. The premise of this movie kind of delivers a huge plot hole to the original Jurassic World. Because why the fuck would they build an amusement park on an island with an active volcano? Why would they do that? I don't under... I Like, that, that creates a huge disconnect in my mind. And that whole set piece in the trailer... The guys, the effects on the dust, and I know they've got several months to go and stuff, but this is your first impression with the audiences. This is how you reel them back in. You made almost, you made over a billion dollars, right? Correct? Yeah, Jake? they made like 1.6 worldwide. Over a billion. <laughs> That's stupid money. <laughs> Unfathomable how that happened, but this is your first impression to get people back in the seats for the sequel. And your CGI looks worse than the movie in 1993. Like, I don't know how the effects are regressing in this series like they are. It deflated me because I wasn't necessarily going in not hopeful. I thought Jurassic World was okay, and I was looking forward to what J.A. Bayona is going to do with it. But looking at this, not only does it look like we're going through the motions, but it looks like we're going backwards again. We're headed back towards Jurassic Park 3, which I hate, and towards the Lost World, which I don't like very much. So, yeah, I, color me not excited. They're going to have to win me back in a big way with that next trailer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to try and defend it because I wouldn't say I'm hopeful, but I don't... I don't think it looks awful. I just think it looks like hoping for the best, but not not expecting it, I guess. I don't know. And poor Jeff Goldblum, because you know he's in this movie for like 10 minutes. Probably. He, there's, there is no way he's in this movie for a long time. My, my thing is, there is, other than some scientists, there is no reason for people to land on that island and try and take the dinosaurs back the way they are. You got to find a way to aircraft yeah. carrier, helicopter... What whatever, there, you should not be landing yeah, on that dark, island. Dark guns just with don't work. Dinosaurs running around and a volcano about to. It just that would not happen. You wouldn't do that. And I'm sorry. I I I know Chris Pratt has a very deep connection with Blue, his raptor. I know he does. That's fine. That's whatever. That's very sweet. But this thing is a fucking live animal. You just leave it. I'm sorry. Like this is not a reason to go back and risk your life again. Yeah. So they but need for me, to flush the only reason more. is to go back is. You land away from the volcano, get a few of them, whatever the DNA you really want, and just accept that this vol this volcano is going off and they're and they're gonna die. They were already extinct, 
So get a few, get the DNA you want, and then <laughs> move on. Don't make a park again, because that doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, See, I, I don't I don't know. Like, when you say it like that, it it reminds me of, like, a Rick and Morty TV sketch. <laughs> and then I the like volcano blows up. <laughs> and, like, on paper, it's not a half-bad idea for a movie. We brought the dinosaurs back. Let's bring back a volcano, and we can have a cool action movie about... The end of the world, but there's dinosaurs. You know, it's stupid fun, but this movie is taking itself too seriously again. And I think, I think right. that's that's the issue. You're you're going in bad Fast and Furious territory here. You know what it sounds like? It sounds like the shit Jake made up probably when he was playing with dinosaurs when he was four or five. Hey, mm -hmm. hey, I was about to compliment you, but I'm gonna I'm gonna ditch that now. I had creative imagination. <laughs> anyway, Leave me alone. Jura Jurassic World: The Fallen Kingdom coming out in June twenty second. They're going to have to work hard to win this person back, but we'll see. they got a lot of time, I guess. Speaking to a trailer that might be a little bit more optimistic, let's log in and listen to the trailer for Ready Player One. My name's Wade Watts, and I ended up here. There's nowhere left to go. Nowhere. Except the Oasis. A whole virtual universe. It's the only place that feels like I mean anything. First person to find the egg will inherit half a trillion dollars and total control of the oasis itself. Help us save the oasis. Ready Player One is the latest action-adventure fantasy sci-fi film by Steven Spielberg, who of course needs a little introduction at this point. It is based off the best-selling novel, by Ernest Klein. It takes place in a dystopian future. Many people escape to the Oasis, which is a virtual reality. There are very little limits to what you can do, what you can access. Pop culture references abound. Just some of the big ones we saw in this trailer. The DeLorean is there. Harley Quinn is there. The Iron Giant is there. Many, many more. I won't spoil anything else. I've read the novel. I really enjoy the novel. It's like this big pop culture phenomenon that really exists to be popular. But it is kind of interesting and hard to adapt, I think. The film starts Ty Sheridan, T.J. Miller, Olivia Cook, Ben Mendelsohn, Mark Rylance, Simon Pegg, a very eclectic cast in my opinion. It's due out on March 30th. Now guys, um, I know neither of you have probably read the Ready Player One book, although I, I'm just assuming I could be wrong about that. Is that is that correct to assume? Have not read it. No, neither have I. Okay. Um, so Jake, going off of this trailer and the trailer that came out around Comic-Con time, are you excited for Ready Player One? I am. I think... The, the first trailer got me amped. I wouldn't say the second trailer gets me amped, but it reinstates the the curiosity and how awesome I think the concept is. I think the idea sounds absolutely awesome. I love the idea of getting all these characters to get together. Like the, the trailer show Freddy Krueger and Iron Giant. I think that is super cool. I think um, this kind of, not apocalyptic world, but future dystopian world, it's all, which is all kind of messed up and overcrowded. That's interesting. Um, visually, I think it looks awesome. I mean, and what what can't Spielberg do? I think Honest Trailer said it. Even his mediocre movies get ten nominations, like <laughs> with Bridges Spies. Spielberg attached to something that looks this cool. I'm very excited. I think it looks really good. Nate, I know you're of a little bit of a different mind. Yeah i I wouldn't really call myself negative, um, but I got similar vibes to how the Jurassic Park trailer was structured here, uh, where I really liked the first half, and then the second half kind of wore on me a little bit. Um, but this one for different reasons. 
Um, I'm not a huge fan of the whole uh, dystopian future subgenre of movies that started a couple years ago. Like, I'm not a huge fan of the Hunger Games movies and count me out on the Maze Runners or anything like that. <laughs> and this movie reminded me a lot about what I hate about those types of movies. Um, this trailer mentions the Oasis at least like eight different times. And obviously it's an important place in the book and I'm assuming the movie as well. Um, but it's just like the way they say it, they treat it like this like this big thing. And that's just not how people talk, you know? And it's it just doesn't sound natural. It sounds kind of cringy to me to hear people talking all this made-up lingo to try to fit this world. It, it I don't know. It, that might be nitpicking, but it's one of those things that just ticks me off. And then seeing another teen lead who's unsure of his place in the world and ends up going on this adventure with rebels to try to take back the dystopian world that they live in. It just feels like stories I've seen before. Um, so I'm hoping the fact that the Iron Giant and Overwatch characters are in this movie is enough to completely subvert those when the movie comes out. Because I am looking forward to seeing all these really cool sci-fi elements to this movie. Um, but I'm just hoping the core principle isn't the same dystopian future movie that I've seen a million times before. Um, I can say if they're going to go off the book, it's not. Um, there's more to it than that. Uh, the book is really creative in the ways that, yes, there there are similarities to other stories, absolutely. Um, it's The whole thing is derivative of everything, and that's the nature of the book. It's all pop culture references, basically. But they use those pop culture references in a really smart and a really clever way. You're talking about the clunky dialogue. If they adapt it in the way that the book is, and again, that's another big if, um, I think the trailer looks pretty good. I think it looks interesting and fun, um, for sure. I it, The book is one of my favorite books that I've read, read in the last five, ten years. Um, and I always thought it would be impossible to adapt. Um, but the dialogue in the book is very much how we talk to each other. Because these are kids that are online, and it's kind of like... It, you know how you have your headset on? I guess you you too, you, have either of you played Xbox or anything? Yeah. It's a lot of the dialogue where like you're talking to each other over there because it's kind of like this big video game environment kind of. But they're all working towards this big goal um, and a lot of them have this these desolate lives. Um, and it's, it's a really clever conceit uh, based around some familiar objects. And Nate, I see where your skepticism is, especially just from this trailer. Um, but I can assure you that it is a entertaining ride if they go along with what the book has. Um, so I'm excited, absolutely. Steven Spielberg is a very, very good choice for this book, um, and he's been working on it probably since 2014, I want to say. So let's hope it pays off. Yeah, I was I was surprised to see so many modern references in there. Like Spielberg is not necessarily like an out of touch guy. But he's he's old and he's like seventy something now. And there was there was um, Mortal Kombat in here. There was uh, Overwatch. That game just came out what two years ago now. Um, so right. whoever is on his team clearly knows the common nerd culture of today, and including that stuff with Back to the Future and the Iron Giant, which again, just seeing him on screen again gives me jitters. Um, that's exciting. <laughs> those are two. Those are two movies that have a lot to thank Spielberg for, for sure. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of it's kind of cool seeing him pay it back to them. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, I mean, Jake, any final thoughts on the trailer? The first trailer got me super amped, um, and then who better to direct in time? I mean, Spielberg is just 
you know, I not a whole lot of new new final thoughts, I guess. <laughs> It'd be a lot of repeating, but I'm I'm excited. I think it <laughs> looks really cool story wise and visually, and you just slaps Spielberg's name on it, and you know, holy hell. Right, Jake, that gave me a good segue, though. Speaking of one of the best directors of all time, <laughs> that'll move us out of our news segment and into Tommy Wiseau's and James Franco's The Disaster Artist. Los Angeles, everybody wants to be star. You have to be the best. You and me, we both have this dream. Yeah, I guess we do. <laughs> I wish we could just make our own movie. A great idea. So there's this guy, Johnny, a true American hero, to be played by me. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. What the fuck doesn't work if you're looking at the camera? Why don't we just shoot in the real alleyway? Because it's a real Hollywood movie. You are tearing me apart, Lisa! Oh. Hi, doggy. That was a piece of the trailer of The Disaster Artist. It was directed by James Franco and is based off of the 2013 book of the same name by Greg Sestro. Uh, Dave Franco plays Greg Sestro in The Disaster Artist. He's a really shy, really nice teen. Just wants to be an actor, but he is too kind of within his own head about it. He's kind of very shy when he gets up on the stage and he's very quiet. Um, he meets this confident, quirky, really strange man named Tommy Wiseau, who is played by James Franco himself. And Wazo is a strange guy. No one knows how old he is. No one knows where he's from. Most importantly, no one knows where he got this bottomless pit of money from. But he's this big, ambitious personality. And he really attracts himself to Greg immediately. The two form a friendship, and they have that money that allows them to travel and move to L.A. from San Francisco and make The Room, which is generally considered one of the best, worst movies of all time. The Disaster Artist chronicles their friendship and the production of that cult classic. The film also stars Seth Rogen, Alison Brie, Paul Scheer, Hannibal Burris, Jason Manizoukas, and dozens and dozens of cameos. Um, now guys, this is a movie that's been on our radar for a long time. We're both, we're all three of us are big, big lovers of The Room, although some of us just saw it for the first time recently, and since he's seen it for the first time recently, he's gonna go first here. Jake Hensler, what did you think of The Disaster Artist? I was gonna say, you could just at me, but, um... Yeah, uh, we don't want to talk about The Room too much, um, but brief, brief, brief snobs. I did just see it for the first time. Uh, it is something else. And I'm really, I'm really, I'm really glad that they, they chose this, this project, you know, Rogan, Franco, and everybody else. Um, it was, it was really good. It was really enjoyable. And it brings a lot of light to, you know, obviously what happened behind the scenes, because that's it's what it's about. But so yeah, it really, it really brings to light how, Greg and uh, and Tommy Wiseau become friends, and then their their struggles in the business. But you really get to know these characters, and one of the things it does really well, at least with with James Franco's character Tommy, is that you learn you know about him a little bit, and you discover how quirky he really is, and what went on behind the scenes, and his directing and everything. But you learn to feel for him. You kind of care for him. You hate him at some points. He makes you laugh at some points. Like you get a ray of emotions from this as his performance, you know, as Tommy Wiseau, but I also, it got a little, a little flack on its, its, uh, on Franco's vision for it as far as directing goes, but I thought it was, it was pretty well directed as well. I think the, the, um, the, his vision for it and the, you know, his choices and how he goes about it. I think, I think a lot of it works and sticks really well. You know, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Nate, what'd you think? All right. Um, again, not to go into too much detail about my thoughts of the original, the room, um, but I like to think that out of the three of us, I'm kind of the bad movie connoisseur. 
So I had high expectations going into this. Depends um, on what you mean by that, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this movie could have gone in a lot of different directions. Uh, you could have just had a celebratory movie about the unbridled genius of Tommy Wiseau. Or you could have had a two-hour roast of Tommy and just how bad the room really is. Um, and I'm really, really glad that they went in the most sincere direction possible, um, where they just treat Tommy Wiseau as a very strange but still human person. And like Jake said, there are moments where you really feel for him, but there's also times where his strangeness is outright horrible to other characters in the movie. And you get an actual arc and real emotions from these very, very strange outlandish characters. Um, James Franco kills it. I think he does a great job here. Um, but I also really enjoyed um, his brother as Greg. I thought that was a really interesting part of the of the movie. Um, so, all in all, The Disaster Artist, it really does stick to the quote-unquote lore of the room. Um, it takes some embellishments, but that's to be expected of a drama that needs to tell a story. Um, but it does so in a very nice, sincere way that shows just a man with a dream who wants to make a movie. Um, somebody asked me the other day when we were talking about uh, preliminarily what my thoughts on the movie were. Um, and it... It's, I'm going to be very interested to hear what you guys have to say about this, but do you have to have seen The Room to like this movie? Um, very quickly, what do you guys think on that? I think the mo seeing The Room is pretty important, but not vital. You might enjoy it, but you have no chance of loving it if you haven't seen The Room, just because at the end of the day, it is kind of like a fan service project. It really wants to just pay tribute to the room uh yeah i i think you can see this w without having seen the room i think it would help or i think you might appreciate it more because the room is it's so weird and it is fascinating to see how it got made so this it would it would help if you had seen it but i think you can enjoy the disaster artist on your own you'll get you'll get to know these odd and quirky characters uh you'll get to feel for them and you'll you'll learn their story so even apart from The Room, it's still a good and interesting uh, movie on its own. Right. And I, I tend to agree with both of you there. Um, both of you kind of said this. Um, this movie could have just been making fun of the making of The Room and still been an entertaining thing. Maybe a less interesting thing, um, but closer to like a knockoff of like this is Spinal Tap or something like that in a documentary kind of style, a parody style. I can see that having worked, especially with this crew. Because the Rogan crew and the Apatow crew have earned the right to go in weird directions with some of their filmography in the past. Like, they're coming off a sausage party, for Christ's sake. One of the weirdest <laughs> comedies of the last yeah, five, no ten kidding. years. Um, so, I'm glad that they're pushing themselves and trying surreal things. However, this movie's ten times more interesting, just like you guys were saying, because of how sincere it is. It has a big, big heart at its center. And it is just as sympathetic as it is biting of what the room is. Most importantly, it is hilarious. Uh, it is really funny. It very much accurately portrays the ridiculousness of Tommy Wiseau and this whole situation. doesn't give you any kind of answers or anything like that. However, it is also this beautiful, really touching love letter to dreams and to ambitions and goals. 
just like any other drama or musical or anything has been like. This movie has some very strange similarities with La La Land, specifically, that I've been thinking of recently. <laughs> um, that's the one over the last 12 months. The, the sister movie that this one will always be compared to is Ed Wood by Tim Burton, um, which is about mm-hmm. the other probably worst director of all time, um, Ed Wood, who made these terrible sci-fi films in the 50s and 60s. And if you guys like this, I really recommend that you check out Ed Wood as well. Um but at the core of the disaster artist is this strange friendship and support system between Tommy and Greg. It's very touching how these two outcasts bring out the best in each other. Um, and casting his brother as Greg was a really brilliant move that I didn't think of going into it. But you really feel the chemistry between the two of them and the kind of the big brother, little brother relationship they have. Dave Franco is really good, but obviously James is the sto- showstopper here. His Tommy impression is off the charts. Um and that really oh. comes to light when you see scenes from the room back to back. Go ahead, Nate. Did you guys see the post-credit scene? Oh yeah, of course. Uh-huh. Like, wait, wait. Okay. Is there one all the way at the end? You saying? There's one after all the credits where he I... talks to the original Tommy Wiseau. No, I didn't. Oh, see I had. I didn't see that. I saw the side. They oh, side everyone's the... been missing it. You got it. Um, for those of you listening in, make sure you stay after oh, all the credits have rolled. And you can see just how spot on James Franco is because there is a small uh, conversation between him and the real Tommy Wiseau. And you can barely tell them apart because the speaking patterns are so similar. It's brilliant. (laughs) Yeah, stuff like that. There are times where it threatens to become just an impression. And again, in a certain movie, just an impression would be okay. Um, but then you get to see, like you were saying, you get to see the dimensions of Tommy, the good and the bad. He, the character's kind of an asshole. He's kind of a dick, but I don't think he's the kind of guy that's aware that he's a dick. He's just so lonely and desperate for attention. And Franco plays him at this kind of weird alien toddler. Um, and that was just an angle that I think was the best possible angle to take with it. This is a movie just made up of really good decisions creatively. I I agree wholeheartedly. Um, there's, there's, uh, couple pivotal scenes in the movie where Tommy's character acts really, really um, rash or incredibly uh, off-putting to Greg. And um, without spoiling it, um, because it's a pretty pivotal scene, um, but he essentially forces Greg to make this decision. And the audience, instead of laughing, like audibly let out a gasp like they couldn't believe and it really added a lot of depth to this relationship because it wasn't all happy hunky dory they aren't best friends for the entire movie there is a falling out um that is both believable and um really sincere and interesting to watch it's not something you expect going in to see a, a movie about a really bad movie and this movie really does a great job portraying that interesting relationship yeah and you got to give credit to the real tommy wiseau and the real greg you got to give credit to them because they clearly were part of the production going into this and for as vain and as egotistic as tommy wiseau probably is in real life for him to let james franco play him in this way as human as he is and kind of dickish at points is it's bold it's good it's it's just really good and it makes for a better movie and it's and it's honest you really because if if he if he decided to take out or tell Franco I I'm not okay with you showing the the dickish parts I guess we're calling it now um if he wasn't okay with him showing that 
it wouldn't be as interesting. It would just be a weird, quirky guy trying to make a movie that doesn't work. Right. But we got to know him better. We got to see what he was like more. We, we you know, delved into the, the relationship of him and Greg. Um, you know, we got to know them both pretty well, and it makes it so much more interesting. But yeah, I think that's a lot of the movie's strengths come from their their relationship or friendship being tested um, and how they get from trying to make it to, I don't know if you, I guess, making it, technically speaking, um, like from getting point A to point B. <laughs> and then realizing it's bad. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. the repercussions Dream, of Dreams getting adjusted, basically. It's, it's a movie about compromise as well for your dreams. <laughs> yeah, that's also true. Like the see what John Apatow, it's, it's never going to happen for you. Not in a million years. He's, he was kind of right. right. What'd you guys think of, of Seth Rogen? Um, I liked him. I thought he was funny. <laughs> I thought he, he broke the tension really well. And I think he serves as kind of the audience surrogate in a lot of moments where he's just commenting on things that I was thinking exactly. Yeah, in my yeah head. exactly. Yeah. That's my take on it too, Drew. I thought he is like the standard um response to somebody watching the room for the first time that's absolutely his purpose yeah what (laughs) the fuck are they thinking yeah okay we're moving on yeah and (laughs) i I actually really liked some of that when they i don't want to spoil it too much but there's so we can talk about in spoilers but there is one scene when they're just so fed up he's like fuck it it just leave it it's fine and then that was that's how it Mm. happened that's how the scene went about like it just it's so interesting but it but that's I could really see that is I could really see the situation going down that way. They're just so fed up at the end of production. Just sure, whatever. If that's how you want it, yeah. And it's almost <laughs> it's almost absolutely how it went yeah. down. Um, <laughs> now I do have some problems. Um, they're not major problems, but there are they are things that keep this from being like a huge perfect movie for me. Um, I think with such a delicate tone that we have here, balancing the the comedy and balancing the drama, I think sometimes it tips too far in either direction. Um, just just momentarily, but sometimes it becomes too serious, or sometimes it becomes too absurd, and that makes it less enjoyable in per- certain points, but they're pretty brief and they move on. Um, the movie's a tiny bit too long, in my opinion, and one of the reasons I think it's a little too long is because there's too many cameos here. Um, some of them really, really work, and I'll get into which ones especially worked for me. Um, one of them gave me the biggest laugh I had in the entire movie. Um, we'll get into that in the spoiler <laughs> section. Um, but there's, there's a string of them, especially in the first 20 minutes that was just, it was overload and it was too much for me personally. It it distracted from me trying to get into the story of Greg and Tommy. Yeah. I think I would have, if I was in the editing floor for this one, I would have taken out 10 minutes of the intro of them, like moving to LA, um, in like little bits and pieces and added a little bit more of the production and definitely added more toward the the finale of the movie. Um, one of the big things about the room um, from a historical standpoint is that Tommy <laughs> thought that he was a genius for the first two, three years of the movie. And it took, it took those two to three years to kind of come to terms with the fact that people were laughing at his movie and eventually he started writing on the DVD covers, uh, come check out my new black comedy movie. Yeah, and it was a big, it was a big growing up mo- moment for him though. Um, and yeah. because the movie needs to end, they kind of rush through that and they decide, okay, let's just have him get over it at the first screening, which from a drama standpoint works. Right. Um, but it does undercut one of the big growing points of Tommy as he enters Hollywood. 
Mm-hmm. I actually didn't know that little fact that you just gave to us. Mm. The the other thing that I'm I was actually kind of disappointed that they didn't include in the film. One of my favorite parts about the room, the original, is how there are some really clearly dubbed scenes. Um, particularly the flower shop scene is famous yes, for amazing. just how <laughs> how yeah. dubbed it sounds because characters are literally interrupting each other in a way that is inhuman to say. <laughs> Um, and this movie doesn't mention that at all. I think another really funny scene they could have included in the production part is having to bring characters back to re-record their lines in the in the audio room. Um, there's there's real comedy in those moments, and um, the movie runs out of time because it needs to finish, and we don't get that juicy morsel. Um, and I feel like there's some stuff that could have been cut to make I, for that. I kind of agree with what you were saying in in the beginning. Um, they could have, they could have, cut like a few minutes off of moving to LA and focus on the production a little bit, like maybe finding an agent or something like that. Like, but just a couple minutes, um, off of the beginning and the end production. Because you're right. Um, we get enough of their friendship and the tests that they go through, while they're going through production as well. We get plenty of it, so we didn't need them moving to LA as much as we got, but I didn't have much of a problem with the runtime overall. I thought, or the cameos that Andrew was talking about, I personally was fine. I thought it was, you know, interesting. Um, and cameos never really bothered me. I didn't have that many problems with it. I just think it's, it's, it'll be remembered and it's a really good movie. It's just not quite like amazing. Yeah. Well, why don't we pivot into ratings here? And if you're just joining us for the first time, we rate movies based on what we call the seat scale. If it's a movie that we believe is really perfect in our eyes, we give it a royal throne. If it's a movie we find really enjoyable, not quite perfect, but really, really enjoyable, we give it a plush recliner. Um, if it is a movie that we think has some kind of flaws but is mostly overall enjoyable, we give it a wooden seat. If it's a movie that we think is the inverse of that, it has a lot of flaws but has a couple enjoyable mo- moments, we give it a damp lawn chair. And if it's a movie that we think is just pure and total shit, it's a sleazy outhouse. And, of course, we've got our bag of popcorn uh, moniker, which is if the movie is worth seeing in theaters or not. So without further ado, Jake, what do you give The Disaster Artist? Um, I'm definitely going a, uh, a plush recliner. Um, I think it's very good. It teeters on great, but doesn't quite get there. And I think the bag of popcorn kind of depends. If you, if you go in with people that have seen the room or if you go in with a good audience – It'll definitely elevate it, but you don't need to see it in theaters. So maybe like like a small bag of popcorn or something like that. Nate, what do you think? Well, I'm going to give this movie a high mark. <laughs> it took me a second. Yeah, it took me a second too. Good stuff. <laughs> nice. Um, <laughs> it's like, what the fuck no, are you talking um, about? This, this, is, this, is a, this is a plush recliner for me. Um, I definitely enjoyed this movie. I am a big fan of The Room, and I really do think that helps. Um, if I hadn't seen The Room, this would probably be a wooden seat for me. Um, but all the subtle jokes and just seeing some of the more ridiculous parts of the movie play out um, on screen with this new cast is really, really fun, and it's it's an experience. Um, I don't think I'd give this one the bag of popcorn, per se, but I would recommend seeing with people. This isn't something you should see by yourself. You should see it either with friends um, as, like, a movie night or in a crowded theater. I think those are both 
uh, fun things because uh, audience is reacting to the funny scenes, especially in the first half of the movie where we're introduced to uh, James Franco's rendition of Tommy is really, really funny. Yeah. Um, and it's made better surrounded by people who love the room too. How many people were in your screening roughly? Uh, I actually got to see it twice. Um, the first time was a little smaller and the second time was pretty, pretty full theater. Um, and both times were enjoyable and a lot of people were laughing at, at the same moments. Right. And I know Jake, you had a smaller crowd. Yeah. I you. was one of 10, maybe 15 people tops. It's pretty small. Yeah. See, I had the mine was I was sold out. It was completely packed in there. I think there were only a couple seats available in the front row, and everybody was having a blast. Um, you could tell there were a lot of fans in the room in that theater. So I will say I'm going to give the movie a plus recliner as well. Um, I think it is a smart, soulful movie, a lot bigger of a smarter and soulful movie than I expected. Um, despite also being supremely entertaining and really, really funny, um, it mixes all the elements that you want out of a really good movie. James Franco is fantastic here. It's one of the 10 best performances by a lead actor this year for sure. Um, he disappears into this role. He's got great rapport with his brother. The supporting cast is really strong. Minor quibbles aside, definitely see it with a bag of popcorn if you can get a chance to see it with a big audience like Nate and I had. Um, but plus recliner, watch it in a tuxedo with a football in your hand with candles, <laughs> musics, and a sexy dress. So anyway... That'll do it here for our general review of The Disaster Artist. If you have not seen The Disaster Artist, please check out now. If you have seen The Disaster Artist or just don't care about spoilers for some reason, head with us here to the rooftop. Whoa! Oh, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Excuse me, spoiler alert! Um, so guys, I was I was complaining a little bit about the cameos, but I would say... The biggest laugh I got from the from the cameos and of the movie in general was Zac Efron as the "Where's my fucking money?" guy. Um, that's <laughs> Chris R. Yes, he as was, Chris R. He was glorious. Um, I, I I saw this with my girlfriend, and she was trying to figure out who um, Denny was, and uh, yeah. she like was whispering me in the theater, and I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, that's all cool, but do you see who's playing Chris R?" And she did a double take, and it was it was priceless seeing the reaction on her face because I already knew it was coming as my second time watching it. He's hilarious. He's so funny. Um, he blows it off over the top, just like the real Chris R in the room. Um, blow me away. And I love I love Tommy's reaction. Where when even when Tommy was always like, "Wow, he's a monster," you know, you're, <laughs> you know, you're too. You've gone too far. That that was one. I didn't realize Zac Efron quite at first either. It took me a second, but. Um, that Zac Efron made me laugh, uh, quite a bit. Um, he was great. And even, even afterward in the audience, he was very funny. Um, a lot of the audience reactions were funny when they had the first screening, but I want to, yeah. yeah, yeah. for me, the one, there's a couple moments where Seth Rogen kills me. One is in the trailer when they're trying to get the, the, I did not oh high mark. And he, the one part where he messes up the line and he goes, I hit her and he goes, no. I think his no, no. Why would you say that? His no delivery. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but the way he says no kills me. That that one's in the trailer, but um, the other one where he's he goes ha ha ha. What a story, Mark. And they're trying to tell him like this is not something you would laugh at. It's not funny because the story is about domestic abuse. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> you would not laugh at it. And he, Tommy chalks and the it up to the story that you wrote. Yeah, 
it's just not yeah. a funny story. And, and Tommy just talks it up to human behavior. And they after after three tries, Tommy doesn't listen. Um, the Paul Shear and Sandy, uh, Seth Rogen talk to each other and like he's not gonna listen to you. And like, fuck it, whatever, it's fine. We'll just leave it. Whatever happens, happens. I don't care. I don't care. And it was just so funny. Just like Seth Rogen's reactions and stuff. There's a couple of times where he goes like, "Dude, you wrote it. You can just rewrite the script if you want." And he's just not listening to him at all. Um. Just some of the small touches that are just too specific to be not true. Um, like Tommy firing the whole crew just to recreate the football scenes in San Francisco. Um, or him not paying for the air conditioning just to be stubborn. Or my, the, my second biggest laugh of the movie was pulling up the limo at the premiere, seeing that there were not enough yep. people there, driving around <laughs> the block. Everyone's seeing him anyway. Yeah. And then him blaming it on traffic. And tra- then him coming back and yeah. saying that's traffic. Oh my God. Blaming, it on, blaming it on traffic. That, that was my he second biggest laugh. just saw you, dude. <laughs> yeah, that was that was great. Um, on, the, on the serious side, I really want to talk about the, the shaving scene. Where Greg decides to keep doing the room instead of doing Malcolm in the Middle with Brian Cranston, that was that was a shocker moment for both me and the audience watching both times I saw it, because um, it really develops that relationship. It is it is a kind of a heart wrenching um, kind of gut punch scene, because you want Greg to be successful and he's clearly picking the wrong choice for his career, um, but he's doing it to help somebody who's supported him. It's, and it's, it's kind of hard. It's yeah, hard. it's him being this petulant child, too. It's just, that's all Tommy's doing. He's being petty. There's no reason. He is control yeah. of the whole thing. Um, and this production has gone way over time and way over budget at this point. It's just him being petty. Um, and it's really impressive that the movie comes back around to it. By the premiere, when you see everybody laughing at the movie, I still felt bad for him. And that's a big testament to James Franco. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the, on the same token, so that is a big character moment for Greg, Dave, you know, Dave Franco, but it's also a pivotal moment for, you know, Tommy, James Franco as well, because he's forcing Greg to make this decision. He's not going to give him two, only, it was only like two days that he needed. He's not going to give him those two days, not going to give him the time he's making him choose. So not only do you feel for Greg and you see their, their friendship go through this, you, I, I don't know about you guys. I was mad at Tommy. I was like, are you? You, oh my you're God, putting yeah. him through so much hell and you are you call this guy your best friend but you're not going to give him these two days for his career to take off? You understand his struggle. You're in the same boat. You're not going to give this to him? And that was, for me, I was like, wow, that's, but that's something. On the other side there, I think the movie does a great job showing Tommy's point of view yep. where from his perspective, he wants to be this savior to the whole crew because he's supporting them financially by paying their salary and he supported Greg by giving him a place to move and he expects some sort of respect out of that. Right. And that's not how friendships work in real life. Um, and you can tell that, um, any sane person would be nice to their friend, but Tommy isn't a normal person. He needs to grow up, but he, um, because he's in this position of power, it just kind of gets to him. Um, and he doesn't know how to handle that kind of situation. Um, so even though it's hard for someone to relate to that, I think the movie does a fantastic job showing his feelings that way without saying them outright, but just kind of say, showing us those kind of emotions. I think it's great. 
Yeah, it's it's just he's got all this money in the world and he's got all of the room in his apartment in the world. <laughs> all the room. Um, anyway, uh, but yeah, he he's a lonely, lonely person. And Greg is the closest thing he has to family, clearly, because he never wants to talk about where he's from or where what he did before this. So yeah, it would make sense. Like an animal backed into a corner, he'd feel threatened. Um, and of course, the way he acts is completely deplorable. But like you said, Nate, you completely understand why he's doing it. And that's a big, big key to this movie working. I Just before we get into final thoughts here, I want to talk about uh, maybe a couple of the other cameos that happen in the film. As you mentioned earlier, Jake, Judd Apatow, he has his one scene where he just gets to be angry and yell at him. Um, I call it the Eminem from Funny People moment. It, it happens in pretty much a bunch of comedy movies where these people come out and they just start yelling um, their famous face. So that, that was amusing. Um Besides Zac Efron, the big cameo that I thought was really funny was Josh Hutcherson as Denny because he really fits the look of the character of Denny um, and just how creepy he looks like this 27-year-old kid that Tommy Wiseau just never really wrote an age for. Um, <laughs> yeah, and yeah, yeah. He's like the same age as Greg, maybe older. Yeah, and the movie completely directly addresses that. Um, and I, I First yeah. of all, going off that point really fast, I really love how Tommy keeps trying to pass himself off as a teenager. It kind of addresses, but not really, the ethics of of Tommy hanging out with how old was Greg at this point was he 18 19 yeah and Tommy Tommy is in his f- probably 40s 50s in this movie it's it's a little <laughs> strange they don't go into it too much but you yeah can... we're introduced to to Greg um playing with little kids at the start of the movie so that's true the, the standards that's there <laughs> um but anyway let's move in here into final thoughts here I think we've exhausted as much as we can talk about the disaster artist Nate Lungarini final thoughts Overall, I'd heartily recommend this movie um, to someone who just wants to see a very entertaining piece about the making of a really horrible, fantastic movie. Um, That said, if you are a fan of The Room, um, or if you're interested in seeing The Room after hearing the hype behind this movie, definitely, definitely check out Disaster Artist. It's, I think it's worth your time. Uh, for me personally, I wanted them to go into a little bit more detail of of the making of the room, specifically the dubbing and um, kind of explaining how some of the more ridiculous performances in the room were made by actors who were just kind of fed up with an over-budget, overdue film. But J- James Franco kills it as Tommy. Um, his brother is pretty good, in my opinion. Um, but the older brother totally steals the show here in a really fun, unique performance. Uh, definitely check out the disaster artist. Jake, final thoughts. Um, I actually, I think Dave Franco is a little bit better than Nate was just giving him credit for. I think Dave Franco was very good. I was surprised that, cause I mean, he's good in his comedic roles, but he flexes uh, his chops a little bit more here and you get to really feel for him and Greg as a character. But on the same front, yeah, James Franco steals the show as Tommy, his, his impression is un- uncanny. It's it's really, really impressive. Um, it's comedic moments are there. It's serious moments are there. It's emotional moments are there. It's overall really, really good. Even if you haven't seen The Room, I think you can enjoy this. But if you have seen The Room and you know anything about it, you should definitely see this at some point. It's really it's really good. And I think it'll it'll be a movie that'll be remembered. It'll, you know, it'll be paired with The Room. Anybody who's seen that and seen this will, you know, really appreciate the story come full circle. 
Right, and I, I don't have anything really much to add, so I'm just going to sum it up real fast. It's a must-watch if you've seen The Room. It is still a pretty good movie if you haven't seen The Room. Um, entertaining, funny, thoughtful, really good relationships at its core, really good performances across the board. This movie does pretty much everything right that it can, and despite some nitpicks, I really, really enjoyed it. It's probably not quite in my top 10 for this year, but it's certainly in the top 25, and I certainly recommend it to anybody that w is even morbidly curious about the best worst movie ever made. And this may have been the best worst episode of The Middle Seat, so we are going to say goodbye, not hi, goodbye, as we get here into the last little hurdle of The Middle Seats. But before we do, Nate Lingarini, where can they find us on the internet? <laughs> All right, so here's how you can get in touch with us. Please like, comment, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Middle Seats. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, both at The Middle Seats. And our email for any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show is themiddleseatshow at gmail.com. Anything you can do to help the channel grow is greatly appreciated. Um, if you have not already, you can check out Freeze Frame, our spinoff show where we jump back in time and we review a movie that might not be strictly contemporary. This is a little confusing, so listen to my wording here carefully. Last week, we talked about Room, an Oscar-winning drama. This week, we'll indulge a bit and talk about The Room, another Oscar-winning drama. I know, it's confusing. Also, the real-life movie that this movie, The Disaster Artist, is based off of. So, check out that. Um, hopefully, if you have not ever seen The Room, it'll inspire you to give this cinematic masterpiece a chance. Next week, it's our biggest episode to date. We venture to a galaxy far, far away with Star Wars The Last Jedi. So... For everyone here at the middle seats, for Jake Hensler, for Nate Lungarini, I'm Andrew Oje. Keep that scene warm, everyone. We'll be back soon.